You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello again. You're all very welcome to our Fellow in Focus session with a very special guest today, Premish Lalu, who uh, needs no introduction, but I will uh, create one for him anyway. Um, uh, Premesh is a research professor at the University of Western Cape in South Africa, and uh, for some time now he's been one of the leading figures in creating uh, a theorised response to the post-apartheid landscape uh, in South Africa. He is also a founding director of the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Western Cape, and those of you here in the hub will know that recently uh, we've uh, built on our partnership with the Humanities Research Centre in Cape Town um, to establish a visiting chair, uh, visiting research chair, the Makeke uh, Robinson Chair, which will be very much to bridge Irish and South African creative arts research. So it's a very exciting initiative. Um, Pramish has also, as again many of you know, been a visiting research fellow here in the hub. Um, so he knows us very intimately, and uh, he knows that normally in a fellow and focused discussion, we try to get a long overview of a researcher's career and their methodologies and their interests. Um, but as you've already done that, Premesh, uh, some time ago, what we're going to talk about today is really your, your new book. And uh, Lindsay uh, referred to it last night, and we've got an opportunity to follow up on her conversation today. Undoing Apartheid, and, and many congratulations on the Thank publication. Uh, so maybe I'll just kick off, um, and again, following on from what Lindsay talked about yesterday at our coffee morning, by asking about the title, because this title, Undoing Apartheid, that word undoing has to do a, a fair bit of work, um, and, and the use of a, a present continuous reminds us that in a, a situation of aftermath, uh, such as what you're dealing with in South Africa, um, the idea that things are finished and sorted out is very much not the case. Uh, and people who might think that Mandela was released back in 1990, the work is done, the new constitution was in place, um, instead you're looking very much at um, emergency continued. And I'm using another title of, of Richard Reeves' book, which you, you use, Richard Reeves' novel, which you use in, in the study. Um, and it's, it's very clear that what you want to talk about is, I think, um, to borrow again from, from Hannah Arendt, the banality of apartheid. And that's a phrase you use in trying to track the, the segue of grand apartheid into petty apartheid. The everyday, the, banal, the mundane versions of apartheid that go into the mechanics, the technologies of uh, contemporary society. And I thought we might start there with you commenting on, on what to you is the everyday lived reality for people of a petty apartheid. Thank you very, very much, Eve, and to colleagues in the hub. This is a homecoming of sorts. Uh, um, so, so really wonderful to be, be with you. Um, it's a great place to start. The book, in some sense, had an initial title, like all books, called The Techno of Trickery. And of course, Polity said, no one's going to understand techne, and no one's going to understand trickery. And I was, how does that? End? But in some way, in some respects, undoing apartheid was trying to think about apartheid as a machinic formation of some sort. And for very long, 
we've been dealing with the problem of apartheid as ideological formation, as a derivative discourse. There have been many, many permutations, and you know, there's been a significant and very substantial left critique of apartheid globally, but also locally, that emerged out of the 60s, out of the new left, um, as it tried to figure out the relations between race and, and class, uh, later questions of gender and sexuality, uh, particularly around the gold mining industries of, of the, what was then called the Val. So in some sense, you know, there's a way in which we, we fail to see its operations. And, and part of this book was an attempt to figure out through the motif of the Trojan horse. And, and it's a motif that comes to me through an, um, a massacre that I lived through in 1985 that's haunted me ever since called the Trojan Horse Massacre. Um, and I've always wondered about what it might mean to think the Trojan Horse beyond event. Um, it was a tragic event. It was a you know, catastrophic event in many, many respects. Uh, for those of you who have the, the courage to view it, it's on YouTube on a CBS uh, uh, news broadcast. Uh, so CBS news crew, crew was on the site the day of the, on the day of the massacre and they recorded the, the, the event. But I've always wondered about the naming of that event, the Trojan Horse Massacre. And, you know, having read Monique Wittig's work, wondered about what it would mean to think differently about the Trojan Horse because it seemed that we had come to monumentalize the violence of apartheid in all sorts of ways. For no, you know, some, in some respects, that monumentalization was, was perhaps, you know, unwitting. Um, in many respects, it was an attempt to come to terms with the trauma of the past post-TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And at another level, it was an attempt to translate apartheid's violence for not only the society that we were living through, but also globally to figure out what this, this enigma of apartheid was all, was all about. So undoing apartheid is an attempt to suggest that, we ought, that there was something found wanting in the critique of apartheid. That in some, some respects, in all the ways we thought about this problem, there was something that just persisted in its, and, and, and endured in its aftermath. And in many ways, I was wondering about what was uneventful about apartheid what was um, interminable in the way one endured apartheid. And in, in, in many ways, I suggest in the book, it was in this form of petty apartheid. So apartheid was a, cons a configuration of two modes of, of racial <coughs> conditioning. One was grand apartheid. Grand apartheid was often through you know, pro projects of social engineering and Fervotu, some claim was the architect of apartheid, I suggest that he was a lab technician in a minor discipline of recent origin called experimental psychology, uh, which is where he, he did his uh, PhD research in 1917 in that field in a laboratory that was a replica of the laboratory that Wilhelm Wundt had set up in Leipzig um, around the 1870s. For Wood's dissertation, roughly translated, would have been titled The Blunting of Emotion. And you could see how, how carefully, they, in the early 1900s, this attention to the sensory order was beginning to take hold. So, so Grand Apartheid was a huge effort at socially engineering the society. And for Wood got that idea from the US. I mean, he had gone to the US his argument was that integration had failed, uh, 
and that what was needed was a new model of partitioning. Now, in the 1948 speech in Parliament, he makes a very clear distinction between partitioning as a post-Second World War political rationality, one that was unfolding in India and Pakistan uh, in the, in the post-independence period, Eritrea, Ethiopia, he speaks about Ukraine and, and the Soviet Union um, then. And um, he's arguing that we need, that what is needed is a different model of partitioning. And I reckon that what he's doing is partitioning this grand apartheid and then apartheid of the everyday, a sense perception, a realm of attending to sense perception in the everyday. And basically, petty apartheid, which was uneventful, mostly seen as an annoyance. In fact, by the early 80s, it had been abandoned as a, as a state project. But its traces and its, its, its consequences were felt, long, were felt long after. And in many ways, I think that what we're dealing with in the post-apartheid are the remnants of petty apartheid. I mean, petty apartheid does not go away. It is there in the everyday. It's a psychic breach. It is a, it is a trauma that just doesn't have... They, they know <coughs> one struggles to articulate the conditioning that happens in the, in the realms of petty apartheid. So petty apartheid in many ways, uh, uh, petty apartheid was a project of sense perception, of trying to demarcate sense perception, of trying to manipulate sense perception through mnemotechnic objects. Often in the everyday technologies of, um, uh, of the cinema were used to constitute subjectivities in, in, in um, in these group areas that had been created under, under apartheid. So I would say that petty apartheid is what remains to be undone. And it requires a very, very different re reading of the problem of race. And it requires one to think very carefully about how race was not, in Stuart Hall's sense, a single signifier, it was a slippery signifier, and that it was shifted from one technical system to another, but that it had a much longer gestation. I would say from the end of slavery through to the early 1900s with the rise of experimental psychology into the, early, uh, into the 1940s where cybernetics became a, a model for organizing life yeah. and, po and power, basically. And, and I want to ask about the, the methods that you use for excavating petty apartheid mm. through theater in a minute. but. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about another framing device for the book, uh, which is how you use Sophocles, how you use the story of Philoctetes, the wounded, uh, the wounded soldier, and that idea of the wound that on one level has to be overcome and put in the past, but at the same time must be carried. Right. And that double bind uh, that, uh, that it leaves a society in. Um, and one of the reasons I'm thinking about this is Obviously, you work through Seamus Heaney's version of the story in The Cure at Troy, yeah. about which we've heard a great deal recently, as uh, yet another American president quotes from it. Um, but also because we're also living through another kind of aftermath here, and I'm not going to do a facile comparison of Northern mm. Ireland with South Africa, but obviously with the 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement and a little bit more since the, uh, the ceasefires, very much on our mind at the moment. I've been thinking about this idea of how a society does carry its wounds. Uh, and one of the 
anxiety sometimes around academic practices of um, cultural memory, doing mm. the academic work around the past, the politics of the past, uh, archiving cultural memory, uh, studying it, analysing it, is the, the worry that we're taking it out of a political realm mm. in order to sanitise it, in yeah. order to make things safe. Um, and one of, the, one of the books that you draw on, I think, very well in uh, Undoing Apartheid is Nicole Leroux's The Divided City, which looks back at um, Athens post-Civil War to look at this problem of both carrying and acknowledging the wound mm. and denying it at the same time. Um, and I wonder how you might reflect on that now. Having written the book, yeah. did it become any clearer to you how a society achieves this impossible um, balance between forgetting and remembering? It's a fantastic question. You know, Richard Reeves' Emergency Continued is a crucial text in, in, this, uh, in this unfolding of the argument. Um, Reeve wrote two novels, one in 1960 called Emergency, the second one called Emergency Continued. Emergency was the generation of the Mandelas and Zabukwes and was largely about the legal infrastructures of apartheid, grand apartheid. And in many respects, uh, Mandela and others were legal thinkers. They thought about grand apartheid as the, as the crisis of, of apartheid. Uh, in the second novel, which is written in the moment of the 1985 student uprising and Reeve taught at a, so there's a bit of a bi biographical reference here. Reeve taught at a teacher's training college right next to my school, but he taught Latin and he was one of the few teachers who was allowed to teach Latin. In fact, a generation of medical doctors and lawyers, because Latin was a prerequisite for entering those fields, came out of Reeve's classes. I mean, there were a few others, but Reeve was a very crucial figure, was never allowed entry into the university to teach, um, and, but had been in conversation with Langston Hughes, and so really dynamic intellectual. Um, Reeves' worry in 1985 in Emergency Continued was this headlong rush amongst the students mm. to pursue a project of liberation before education. Mm. And there, were, there was a debate in the public sphere about you know, whether we just sacrifice this education and just rush headlong towards this end goal, you know, which is break up this, this infrastructure that had become unlivable. And Reeve writes emergency continued in a way that tries to avoid a generational conflict, exacerbating a generational conflict, because that's how South Africa is constituted in the political imaginary as a conflict around generation. So we speak about the Mandela generation and the Youth League and there's a generational conflict that is written into the script of the anti-apartheid struggle. And Reeve very consciously is attempting to avoid a slide into a generational conflict. So the novel is set around a tension between uh, this guy Andrew Dreyer who is a lecturer at the Teachers Training College who is a failed writer, sometimes I think like myself. Um, and um, and his son, Bradley, and you know, this uh, Dreyer is beginning to worry about how myth from the, from the street fighting is beginning to seep into the classroom and how he's going to deal with this, this mythology that is you know, being brought to bear on his, on his classes. And at the same time, his, his son has decided he's going to give up on education. And you know, this is the moment of fighting and not, not studying. 
So that debate has bedeviled South Africa and continues to bedevil South Africa to this day. The generation of 1985, as they, as they often refer to, have not, were subsequently referred to as the lost generation. So in the early 90s, there was this you know, generation of people who hadn't been to school, who had been unemployed, and there's been a long-standing unfolding of this, this nightmare of generational conflict. When I read Heaney's Cure Troy, and I stumbled on it when I was in, um, in, at the hub, at the exhibition that's over the road, but also, thanks to Jane, got taken to Balahi, to the museum then, read the Cure Troy and had not realized at that point, notwithstanding Biden's misquoting of, that, uh, of, of the, the rhyme of hope and history, which is actually spoken by three women about two, three men about the folly of war, and, and he should know better. Um, but I was intrigued by the way in which Heaney is attempting to think through the question of education. So the book in some ways is an attempt to say, what would, it have, what would have happened if the students of 1985 thought through the medium of education as the means of achieving their goals of liberation, whatever that might be. And there was something about education that was lost in that 1985 moment that Reeve is pointing to, but that Heaney, I think, is also pointing to. So I don't know if you know that Heaney was initially, it was suggested that they do uh, Antigone. And Heaney felt that this was so well-worn and you know, so many post-colonial questions had been dealt with through Antigone that he turned to Sophocles' uh, Philoctetes. So let me just back up a little bit. In the Faustus chapter, the Lesejo Rampolo King is the scriptwriter, and he has this line, something about, there is no suture for a wound of a slashed future. It's a remarkable playing out of this idea that, you know, the wound might not be cured uh, or healed, sutured. In fact, the heal, in this instance, the, the wound is poisoned. Um, so the question then becomes how to live with the wound. And Neoptolemus in that sequence between Odysseus, the sophist, and uh, you know, the one endowed with mastery, and Philoctetes, the wounded, would offer different prospects for an education out of the um, inheritance of the past. And I think what Heaney is asking us to do is to think about what educated choices would we make in relation to the infliction of that wound, uh, without, without thinking that we're going to ever transcend you know, the brutal and violent inheritance of that past. So I don't think that one gets out of apartheid. You know, the idea of there's some kind of transcendental escape is not going to happen. And I think what we've done is failed again and again at doing exactly that. And I think South Africa has been drawn into a double bind of a problem that is not South African. It's actually global. Derrida's point when he opened racism's last word, which is the art collection uh, for art, this art contra apartheid exhibition, was that apartheid was a European creation. So the question here is, going back to your first question, how does one begin to rethink the relation between apartheid as a, as a global project and its unfolding in the space of, of South Africa, this accidental place where it arrives after 1948 in the aftermath of the Second World War. So Reeve, in 
Reeves' book is important because it gives us an opportunity to think through the question of education. And as I suggest in the book, what we might be looking for is an aesthetic education. Um, because an aesthetic education is the one that thinks about how to re-engage the problem of a sensory order. And I would say, suggest that when you look at the post-Wundian legacy in Germany, that a lot of that came to settle in this idea of a sensory order. It, the title, that term, sensory order, is Hayek's term for an essay he writes as a student in 1920, Friedrich Hayek, who is one of the uh, you know, crucial inter, in, thinkers of, of the project of neoliberalism. Having lost that debate to Maynard Keynes, and I'm caricaturing here a little bit, he rewrites that piece as a book in 1952. It's been republished by Chicago University Press now with a wonderful introduction by Bruce Caldwell. There's something that we are not seeing in the political rationality of partition that allows us to think differently about the sensory or the sensory order. So in sensory education, is pitted against the sensory order. It's an attempt to not only undo, but to reverse the kind of consequences and effects of a sensory order. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to open to questions uh, shortly because I know people will want to talk more about this, but in this, in this provocative move towards really endorsing an aesthetic education uh, in an era of globalization, let's, let's add that bit on, and that acknowledges what we won't have time to talk a lot about, but just how much of the book must necessarily excavate a history of slavery and race mm. that is created through uh, European yeah. discourses. And you look at science and, and you look at art and, uh, and various other discourses in those terms. But what I want to come to is the question of language itself, because your method, Pramash, in the book is to work through three theatrical pieces, all of them rewrites or um, uh, versions, adapted versions of uh, well-known works in which there is no, let's say, traditional language on mm. the stage used. Instead, the performance methods rely on the kinetic arts, on puppetry in particular, and this calls to, to mind your very close collaboration, uh, collaboration with Handspring mm -hmm. uh, Puppet Company and more recently with the work that Yukwanda yep. is doing. Um, with sonic arts and the use of soundscapes and the use of video installation and the use of various other forms um, that give us new modes of articulation, let's say, because as you write, I think, very persuasively, there's a need to avoid the traps of a, a, a familiar language and political rhetoric. And sometimes you have to shift to an alternative language, which all of these plays seem to do. Um, and the one that interests me most is the third one, Ubi and, and the Truth, Truth Commissioner. Uh, and you have an absolutely stunning chapter on slapstick. Mm. Uh, and the importance of slapstick, and you engage Benjamin on Mickey Mouse uh, and, uh, and surrealism in order, has one way into doing that. But it, to me, it was a, a really rich opening of a door onto why slapstick, as I think you put it in a great line, surprises the senses, mm. almost shocks us into alternative modes of thought. Uh, and to me, it was an endorsement that carries right across even to our own Samuel Beckett yes. and why he writes in the way that he does. Uh, so it was a kind of chink of light coming in for me yeah. on the form. But I'd wonder if you talk a bit about 
why you turn to to theatre in particular of, of many art forms that you look at in the book? There's so many ways to to respond to that question. Uh, let me say that the word theasma, and you know, there are many discoveries in this book. There's an education that's unfolding as well. So part of it is me learning to learn, uh, to use uh, Spivak's formulation. Um, Theasmai allows you to think about theatre and theory um, coterminously. So, you know, these are derivative of the, of the Greek word theasmai. And, and there is no archive for petty apartheid. It was so inconsequential and so banal that there is very little record of petty apartheid, unless you ended, entered the judicial system through an infringement of the laws of the everyday, which may, would mean transgressing a racial boundary, going to a cinema and watching a film that was not meant for your categorized, you know, was not uh, meant for the category that you were designated, and so on and so forth. So, Petty Apartheid doesn't have an archive. It does not have a museum collection. I mean, there are museums that are beginning to think about the everyday, and that's very interesting because the District 6 Museum and a whole range of others, Luanli Migrant Labor Museum, they're trying to think the, you know, the, the uneventful. Um, but nationalism had completely missed the question of petty apartheid. He just, he just thought of petty apartheid as an annoyance. So going to the theater, and I'd seen these three plays by Kentridge and Handspring Puppet Company in the 1990s. They all performed around the period of the transition. Faustus in Africa, Wojciech on the Highfelt, and Ubu and the Truth Commission. They had put before us the question of what is the post-apartheid subject? What would be the post-apartheid subject that is not marked by the inheritance of a racial formation, such as apartheid? And it was only when I went to the National Gallery in Ireland and I saw the Francis Danby painting, the opening of the Sixth Seal, and I was completely blown away. I, I mean, I stood in front of that painting and the security guard came to me and said, um, do, do you admire this work? I mean, just so that there's a footnote here, the Joyce children I learned subsequently were taken every Sunday to go see the painting to instill the fear of the wrath of God in them. So, <laughs> um, so I stood there and then he said to me, do you see the stitch? And I looked and I mean, it's barely noticeable. Um, and someone had walked into the, there's a long story behind this, which I track in the second chapter. Someone had walked into the gallery where it was on display in Rockdale in, uh, um, in Britain and cut out the slave from the, the painting. And Danby stitched the slave back into the painting. And it was the question of suturing and stitching that made me think that the end of slavery, the Cape was a slave-holding society, and John Herschel and others had come to map the southern skies. Darwin visits him in 1836, and Darwin is deeply influenced by preliminary discourse on the study of natural philosophy. You will, a whole number of others in that Cambridge uh, Philosophers Breakfast Club had been very influential in um, the imagining of the on the origin of species. So I was completely amazed that, you know, the lacuna between the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery, and this rise of the scientific revolution that gave us thermodynamics in the first and second laws of that, the violation of the second laws. And quite clearly, it, it indicated to me that something like race became available as a, 
as a, as a formation of some sort or the other. I mean, I, I've spoken to several slave historians, amazing. None of them thought about what was the seepage, you know, I'm using that word quite a bit, out of slavery uh, that gave rise to the question of race that we know today in our modernity. And, and it's a question of race that is tied to technology at one level. But it is also a question of race that moves from one technical system, as I was saying, to another. So, so the puppet is midway between the human and technology. And I know Hans Spring talks about the puppet as an emotional prosthesis. Um, but in, in the way I deploy it here, it's a marker for the problem of race and the unresolved questions, the excess of race that is held in the, in the, in the puppet. Um, so the, there was a gift that Kentridge and Handspring gave us and Kentridge in his own reckoning with the three plays uh, Faust, which is mainly Faustus in Africa which was based on Faust II which Goethe had finished around the time of the abolition of slavery just before he died in the 1830s Wojciech on the Highfeld which was based on Buchner's Wojciech written in between 1834 and 1837 and then of course Ubu and the Truth Commission which is late 1800s. It had one performance in Paris uh, before it was it was disallowed because of a, the use of an obscenity. We shall not use the obscenity here um, in the opening lines of the play. So the both Wojciech and Ub and uh, Faustus, I was thinking that Kentridge was trying to indicate or point to an inheritance of slavery rather than simply colonial rule. Even though Faustus in Africa is very much about the colonization of Africa, Kentridge very quickly gets to the position of class as the dynamic that orders uh, African societies. And I was interested in why the, the erasure of the question of slavery, especially if he's reading Goethe and, and Buchner. So, so those two chapters try to recuperate something of the quality of race in immaterial labor and sensory evisceration. Wojciech, as you know, is a subject that is depleted of any sensory capacity to be in the world. So there's a way in which labor and race are threaded together, but not in the way that Kentridge would want us to, to, to believe. So there's a bit of a critique of Kentridge in this work. And partly, you know, the two major interpreters of apartheid in South Africa internationally, Kutsia, and Kentridge, and there are no significant critiques, I mean, not to my knowledge. Mm. Um, and so part of it was to look, at, look for those blind spots. Mm. And in the deployment of the puppet, I could not imagine that we were dealing with anything but the deep difficulty that comes to dealing with the question of race. And then just finally on, on slapstick, I mean, Dadaism and slapstick that comes through, I mean, I, was, I grew up watching mm. lots of Chaplin, yeah. And, you know, much political education on the left happened through Chaplin. Yeah. And it was always available as a resource. So people anecdotally, in the everyday, talk very, they, ref, they, they turn to slapstick very quickly. I mean, there's the moment that in Abdullah Ibrahim, brother with the perfect timing, which I talk about this moment, these two brothers walking down the street smoking a joint. Am I allowed to say joint? You're allowed to say joint. joint. You're allowed to smoke one. <laughs> no, no, smoke one. Smoking a joint and behind them there's this girl that's skipping and behind her there's a car that's accelerating and he scoops out of the way. Brother passes the joint back to him and the car passes and he says, perfect timing, master musicians. 
And it's about arrival, right? It's about without colliding. So slapstick, in a sense, was setting up the way in which the, the everyday was about just endless collisions. I mean, the, the absurdity of it all. And it was a theater of the absurd in that sense. You know, there was an absurdism that underwrote the everyday. Well, Pramesh, the Trinity Long Room Hub is your second home, so please... Thank you. I was asking uh, nicely. Ask nicely, but you're welcome anytime, and it's been a real pleasure and an honour to have this thank time you. just to talk to you. Thank you so much for the book, and thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very and much. Thank you. For